0: During the past few months, the desire has been repeated expressed that I make a detailed confession of all the graver crimes that have, with such marvelous skill, been traced out and brought home to me. I have been tried for murder, convicted, sentenced, and the step of my execution upon the 7th of May, namely the reading of my death warrant, has been carried out, and it now seems a fitting time, if ever... To make known the details of the 27 murders of which it would be useless to longer say i am not guilty in the face of the overwhelming amount of proof that has been brought together not only in one but in each and every case and because in this confession i speak only of cases that have been thus investigated and of no other i trust it will not give rise to a supposition that i'm still guilty of other murders which I am withholding. H.H. Holmes, April 12, 1896. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. (music) Hey everyone, welcome back. What you just heard were the words of the man who shall be our topic over the next couple of weeks. But first, this is episode number 50. Can you believe it? I am so surprised, floored, and humbled that this journey has lasted 50 whole episodes. Thank you to everyone who has listened, reviewed, and shared the show. It makes my morning coffee that much sweeter. And speaking of all you wonderful humans out there, the subject that we'll cover the next couple of weeks is a request from one of you, someone who has supported the podcast from day one and who has acted as a one-person billboard. Val heard me mention the infamous H.H. H. Holmes when I talked about the World's Fair and asked that I do a deeper dive. So thanks to her, we'll be spending some time getting to know the man behind the legend, the one, the only H.H. H. Holmes. These next two episodes will be the stories of his crimes, and so I want to put a word of warning out to the younger fans of the show. Listener discretion definitely advised. There is a lot to discuss, so cozy up and grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. Touted as America's first serial killer, there is much about H. H. Holmes that just doesn't live up to the legend. To start, Holmes was not America's first serial killer though he may be one of the most infamous. According to the Library of Congress, the earliest recorded serial killers date back to the 1790s and were a pair of brothers, Mikacha Big Harp and Wiley Little Harp. And while folklore would have us believe Holmes is responsible for the murder of hundreds, there isn't a whole lot of evidence to support these claims. So, how did Mr. Holmes gain his notorious reputation? Much like viral tweets and newspaper headlines today, sensationalism sold papers in the days of yore, and journalism did not have the same level of ethics as it does today. Journalists would print anyone's story, sometimes without fact-checking or otherwise corroborating claims. And Holmes played into the hysteria in an effort to gain the one thing he seemed to care about most deeply—money. As I will cover, Holmes made up stories on a whim to further his schemes, and playing the newspaper journalists was just another con for him. Holmes isn't even his real name, but since it's the one he's most known by, I will use it when referring to him throughout these episodes. So, let's start at the beginning, shall we? H. H. Holmes, born Herman Webster Mudgett, grew up in the small town of Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Born on May sixteenth, eighteen 1861, to Levi Mudgett, a house painter, and Theodite Mudgett, a stay-at-home mom, Holmes's childhood was normal according to all contemporary accounts. Holmes was described as a good student, quiet and well-behaved. The one complaint people had about Herman was his inability to look you in the eye. His avoidance of eye contact appears to be the result of a medical condition known as strabismus, or walleye. This condition makes the individual appear cross-eyed and has been shown to increase isolation in children due to being ostracized by their peers. The lack of eye contact would be quoted by many in their stories to the press as to why they never fully trusted Holmes. Herman was interested in money at a very early age and did not necessarily want to work for it. There are several stories from his childhood friends of money going missing and Holmes having no answer for where it went. And the dollar amount did not seem to matter as stories circulated about change going missing whenever he was around. It seems as though he was obsessed with two things, money and women. At the tender age of 14, Holmes became enamored with a young woman who was visiting from out of town. Having inherited a small piece of property from his grandfather, Holmes supposedly proposed marriage to his young paramour. But parents intervened, and any potential engagement was terminated as the girl returned home and was removed from Herman's life. Holmes fell in love again at 16 with Clara Levering. While the stories of how they met differ, they did initiate a courtship, and the following year were married on July 4, 1878, by a justice of the peace. Holmes, out of school but not gainfully employed, could not afford to support a home for he and his new bride. She continued living with her parents, and he would visit on the weekends, often walking miles to see her. Their marriage seemed happy, at least initially, and Clara gave birth to their son Robert in 1880. Holmes was interested in pursuing medicine as a career, likely in the pursuit of financial security, and apprenticed under a Dr. White before moving to formalize his training and enrolling in medical school in Bullington, Vermont. He quickly ran out of money and was unable to continue paying his tuition and left after just a semester. In 1882, finances improved and Holmes enrolled into the University of Michigan's medical school, with Clara working as a dressmaker to help support the family. A con artist from the start, Holmes listed his home state as Michigan when applying to the school, likely to avoid the higher cost of tuition. Herman reportedly really enjoyed the dissection part of medical school, but otherwise was an unimpressive student. His marriage deteriorated during his educational pursuit. He and his wife were known to get into violent arguments, and Clara was seen with bruises on multiple occasions. The marriage eventually got so bad that Clara left Herman prior to his graduation and returned to New Hampshire. Though they never divorced, Clara would have no further contact with Holmes for over a decade. After a few short stints in the medical profession and an aborted plan to attempt to defraud an insurance company, Holmes moved to Chicago in 1886. In a new city, Herman ditched his original moniker and officially started life as Dr. Harry Howard Holmes, or H.H. Holmes, as he would later become known. This is just one of many names he would use throughout his criminal career, and it was as H.H. Holmes that he began working at a pharmacy on 63rd Street. In Inglewood, a suburb of Chicago. Some of the lore surrounding Holmes claims his first murders were of the couple who owned the pharmacy. However, this is just not the case. Dr. Elizabeth Horton and her husband eventually sold the drugstore to Holmes and lived out their lives peacefully, still alive when Holmes was eventually arrested in 1894. In early 1887, Holmes married Myrta Belknap, though he was still legally married to Clara. Details of how they met or how long he courted her remain unclear. However, it is believed that they met in Minneapolis. Of all the people that Holmes scammed and swindled, I personally feel the worst for Myrta. Whether through blind ignorance or extreme naivete, Myrta weathered quite a few slights at the hands of Holmes, including his carrying on an affair right under her nose. Chicago is where Holmes's criminal career flourished. His preferred method of criminality was through credit fraud. Over and over, Holmes would purchase goods and materials with a promissory note of credit, only to turn around and sell those items for cash and never pay the original seller. He also conned people into investing in companies and ideas that had no chance in ever becoming real, such as a glassbending company using gas. After buying out Dr. and Mr. Horton from the drugstore, Holmes purchased a few lots of land across the street and prepared for development. He placed the deed to the property in his mother-in-law's name, again never planning to make any substantial payments on the property. When he was sued for non-payment in 1888, Holmes claimed innocence as the property did not belong to him, and therefore he owed no payments. Construction began in August of 1887 for a two-story building that would contain retail space on the first floor and residential apartments on the second. The infamous third floor, which Holmes advertised as eventual hotel space to investors, was still another year off. Much has been made about the supposed murder castle. The lore surrounding Holmes has as much to do with the murderous hotel as it does with the man himself. Many stories focus on the fact that Holmes' original intent when he started developing the property was to create some kind of death trap where he could dispose easily of his victims. Alas, much of the stories, like the man himself, doesn't live up to the hype. For one, Holmes began developing the Inglewood property before a decision about the World's Fair was decided or announced. And though publicized as containing secret passageways and chutes with which to dispose of bodies, the truth is a little less exciting. Holmes's architectural plans for the property were odd, for sure. Holmes included hidden rooms, but it wasn't really a secret. Employees of the drugstore were aware of the disguised rooms and weird stairway placements. In fact, one burned employee showed some of Holmes's creditors where they could find their unpaid for goods in one of the secret rooms. It is likely that due to how Holmes operated, buying items on credit and turning around and selling them for cash, he needed a place where he could discreetly hide his goods in case someone ever came asking. And the stories about the lime and acid vats used to melt decaying bodies? Another story concocted by a man known as having a drinking problem. While Holmes may have used a furnace in the basement to help burn some remnants from his victims and partial body parts, it wasn't big enough to destroy an entire body. Busying himself with scheming and conning, Holmes also continued on with his private life and welcomed another child in July of 1889 when Myrta gave birth to a little girl, Lucy Theodite Holmes. Myrta, Lucy, and Holmes all lived in the second floor apartments above the drugstore in Inglewood. Never satisfied with making a legal living, Holmes continued to explore various methods of scheming and defrauding anyone who was gullible enough to believe his yarns. In 1890, Holmes started the Warner Glass Bending Company. He worked to convince investors that he created a new way to bend glass, supposedly building his very own furnace to use gas and a new form of technology. Another business, the ABC Copier Company, began as a legitimate enterprise. That is, of course, until Holmes got his hands on it. Originally founded in 1890, ABC Copier was focused on the ability of the ABC a machine capable of duplicating architectural drawings. In 1891, Holmes bought into the company and appointed himself as secretary. Of course, he used a promissory note to gain his ownership share and promised the man he was buying out, former president of the company, Thomas Bryan, that his name would be removed from the company and would not be used to obtain credit. Of course, Holmes did not keep up his end of the bargain. Not only did he never make good on his note that made him secretary of ABC, but he also extended thousands in credit using Brian's name. Brian was a central figure in bringing the 1893 World's Fair to Chicago, and it was quite an embarrassment to be swindled by the con man. While juggling his multiple fraudulent and legitimate businesses, Holmes began an affair with the woman who would later become his first confirmed murder victim, Julia Smythe Connor. Connor, who moved into the Inglewood Apartments with her husband Ned, was hired to work as a cashier in the drugstore, while Ned worked the jewelry counter. Holmes's astute attention to Julia raised Ned's suspicions and caused friction in their marriage. Ned eventually discovered the affair between Herman and Julia and decided to leave. He quit his job at the drugstore, moved out of the apartment, and left Julia and their small child Pearl behind. Holmes and Connor continued their affair under the same roof as his wife, Mirta. Forever the con man and schemer, Holmes offered Julia the opportunity to bind to one of his many companies. Using a $1,000 promissory note, Julia apparently held an ownership interest in the company, though her ownership provided no profit sharing or decision-making abilities. Taking a page from Holmes, Julia made only a few payments before negating on her responsibility. Things got so contentious that Holmes even filed a suit against her to collect on the promised funds. Their relationship began to grow tense, and Holmes eventually moved wife Myrta and daughter Lucy off-site and into a home in Wilmette. Come Christmas Eve 1891, Julia was planning on attending her sister's wedding and told neighbors she would be gone for a few days. It was the last time she was ever seen alive. Julia's body was never found, so it is an assumption that she and her little girl, Pearl, were both murdered at the hands of Holmes. Part of this is due to Holmes' own confession, though, as we'll discuss, these aren't entirely reliable. In one of the many confessions given by Holmes, he claimed Julia died as the result of a botched abortion attempt. Unwilling to have his mistress carry his child to term, Holmes apparently tried to perform an abortion on Julia, who suffered complications and later passed away. So, if it went down the way Holmes suggested, what happened to Pearl? How was she involved? The details of her assumed death remain unknown. Holmes never admitted to killing the little girl. However, after his arrest, the Inglewood property was searched, where bones were recovered that doctors at the time estimated belonged to a child between the ages of six and ten. Pearl was six years old. We will never know why he decided she had to die instead of returning her to her father Ned. And we will never know exactly how she died. Sensationalized reports claimed Holmes burned the little girl. However, like I mentioned before, the furnace in his cellar where the bones were discovered was not large enough for an entire body, not even that of a child. Though it is possible, even likely, he cut her up post-mortem and burned her body in pieces, her manner of death was likely poison. In a particularly grotesque display of cruelty, Holmes maintained a ruse of searching for Julia and her little girl for months after their deaths, even raising money to start a fund to care for Pearl. The next assumed victim of Holmes is Emmeline Sagran. Sagran, also suspected as another Holmes mistress, came to Chicago in the spring of 1892 looking for work. She never lived at the Inglewood apartments or worked at the Holmes Pharmacy, but did take work at the ABC company. She lived in various boarding houses, never staying in one place for too long, and soon began to tell friends of her pending marriage to a man named Robert Phelps. There is no record of a Robert Phelps living in or around Chicago during this time period. In all likelihood, Sagran used a pseudonym when discussing her intimate relationship with Holmes, being fully aware of his marriage to Myrta. In a visit with a neighbor in December of 1892, Emmeline disclosed she was heading to Indiana for the holidays and might extend her trip a little bit. She never came back. As a body was never discovered, Emmeline Sagrand's death is only assumed, and again, we may never know the cause. In another example of his dedication to the con, and in another act of complete cruelty, Holmes paid for a wedding announcement in a local newspaper and had wedding cards printed, which he sent to her parents. When neighbors asked Holmes of Sagran's supposed new husband, he feigned ignorance, saying he only knew Phelps to be a traveling man. Emmeline's parents remained concerned when all communication with their daughter ceased. This sustained interest in her disappearance may have rattled Holmes, and in January of 1893, Emmeline's parents received a letter, a typed letter, supposedly from Sagran, stating her new husband had turned out to be a drunk and she was seeking refuge in Europe. This did not make her parents feel much better. And I think this is where I'm going to leave you hanging. Come back next week as I continue my home saga and dive into the crime that would prove his eventual downfall, the death of Benjamin Peitzel. If you want to learn more about how you can support the show, request an episode topic, or just say, Hey, girl, hey! Check out the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. And if you've been enjoying the show, Please leave a review on either Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, or both. I love it all. I love hearing from you, and your reviews help spread the word. Thanks again for a great 50 episodes, peeps. You rock. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. Construction began in August of oh, so sh- Taking a page from Holmes, Julia made only a few payments before negating. Blah, 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 blah. Chicago is where Holmes criminal career blah, 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 blah. Chicago is where Holmes's criminal 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 Part of this is due to Holmes's own confession. cafesha okay well we're just gonna wait now.